Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Did you ever see the 1951 Disney version of Alice in Wonderland, where the caterpillar, voiced by actor Richard Hayden, sits laconically on his giant toadstool, wreathed in hookah smoke, peers at Alice under his drooping eyelids and says, Who are you? Even as a kid, I felt the existential impact of that question. Not, hey kid, what's your name? But who fundamentally are you as a person? What do you like? Were you born that way? How much of that can you change? All those chilling, thrilling, bottomless, ego-gratifying questions. But what happens when the murky philosophy and psychology of the self meet good old American pragmatism and business? Something very weird indeed. I'm here today with Marve Emre. She's an associate professor of English at Oxford University, and she's the author of The Personality Brokers. It tells the strange history of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, a mother-daughter psychological cottage industry that 70 years in still has people calling themselves introverts or extroverts, feelers or thinkers, and pondering what that might mean for their lives and their careers. Welcome to Think Again, Marve. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. I mean, I, I've been interested in the Myers-Briggs what I guess most people end up calling for shorthand the Myers-Briggs test, although it's not technically a test, uh, for a very long time. But what drew you to this subject? Well, I'll tell you a dirty little secret, which is that before I went to graduate school to get a PhD in English, I was actually a management consultant <laughs> at a company called Bain. That is a dirty um, secret. Yes. It yeah. is a really <laughs> dirty secret. Don't tell anybody or they'll take my PhD away. <laughs> And uh, when I started at Bain, I was 22, I was right out of college, and one of the very first things we did when we started was take the MBTI. Um, and we took it uh, one day in the office, and then a couple of weeks later, we're whisked away to this extravagant offsite where an executive talent coach came in and debriefed us on our types. And I was never the sort of child or adolescent who really thought that much about myself or or who I was. Were you raised in Turkey or in the UK or or uh, Canada? No, no, or? I was raised. I mean, I was born in Turkey, but my we moved to the United States when I was three. I mention that only because the little I know about Turkey, I know that it it tends to be a little less of an uh, individual individualism mad society than the one I live in. I think that's right. And I also think that uh, when we immigrated, uh, my parents really sort of perfected the immigrant narrative of uh, we made the sacrifice for you and your education. And so you sort of have to pay us back through a certain set of accomplishments. So gotcha, whenever I gotcha. thought about what I had to do, it was never really about what I wanted to do or what might be the best thing for me to do, but it was what would sufficiently communicate my gratitude toward my family. So the self was really quite alien to <laughs> me as a concept for a very long time. And so, you know, this was really my first encounter with a language of the self. And I, my, my type is an uh, ENTJ. And that type has remained uh, fixed when you've taken the test multiple times? Because I know that that is a thing. They, they do sometimes fluctuate. The test actually has quite a low test-retest reliability. Uh -huh. um, and I find it difficult to answer that question because <laughs> I have trouble, when I've retaken it, I've had trouble approaching it with the same sense of innocence that I had when I took it the first time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so I know what my type is supposed to be or what it was the first time. And so I think I'm always inclined to answer questions so that there's some consistency. 
um, in the type. So the last time that I took it, I came out as the strongest possible ENTJ you could be, which was <laughs> that my preferences were 100% clear in every direction of the dichotomy. Let's clarify, you know, for listeners, you know, we may not be able to break down the entire system right now, but what what does ENTJ mean? Sure. So ENTJ, uh, the E is for extrovert. The other side of the dichotomy is introvert. N is for intuitive. The other side of the dichotomy S is for sensing. T is for thinking. The other side of the dichotomy is F for feeling. And J is for judging. The other side of the dichotomy is P for perceiving. So there are 16 different types that can be formed from those combinations. So when you took the test and found out that that was your type, what was the feedback loop for you? I mean, did you sudden, did you, you know, was it, was it like when one goes to an astrologer and everything the person says perfectly applies to your life? A little bit, a little bit. So bear in mind that I was 22 and I remember learning my type and then going through this debrief with the executive talent coach and being so immensely seduced by the language that was used to describe my type. Um, and part of it was because the ENTJs are supposed to be the commander types. Um, and I was in this very particular setting, which was you know the early days of a job where someone was telling me that I not by virtue of any kind of accomplishment or hard work, but just because of my innate <laughs> personality, was poised to take over or to lead this company or some other company. So like I said, at 22, when I still right. believed that that was something I was interested in or was like a socially valid objective, <laughs> that, was, that was a compelling fantasy at the time. Um, and I remember talking to this coach afterwards when everybody had left because I wanted her to tell me more about myself. Um, and she was sort of, you know, graciously dismissive uh, <laughs> because she, of course, didn't really know anything about me. And, and that is the thing about the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is that on the one hand, it appeals to, you know, like astrology, it appeals to our vanity and our narcissism, you know, however strong that may be. But I mean, I think everyone has a little bit of that, that sense of uh, somebody knows, you know, finally who I am. Um, and also, as you point out in the book, unlike earlier personality tests or indicators, it isn't about finding out what's wrong with you. It's about finding out what's right with you. It has a sort of egalitarian bent in the sense that everybody, every type is necessary. Every, you know, every, every type is worthwhile in the world. That's at least how it's sold. And that is the that is what I think made it so appealing when it was designed in the 40s, because in the 40s, the major personality tests that were on the market were often geared towards separating normal people from people who were abnormal in various kinds of ways. And so the idea of a personality assessment that did not form these kinds of divisions between people, that was just intended to help people figure out what it was that they were best suited to doing. And right. what might make them happy was uh, tremendously appealing and I think continues to be continues to be tremendously appealing. And the sort of market usefulness of this, I mean, going back to those earlier tests that are about determining who is a neurotic, quote unquote, or an imbecile or whatever they, you know, would have called them back, right. called somebody who deviates from the desired norm back then. The market usefulness of this arises in the context of business, of the military, of both. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's most obvious in uh, the context of a corporation. So if you are asked to take the indicator and you are told what your type is, and then you are told that certain jobs are better suited to you because of your type, I think you will be willing to bind yourself freely and gladly to the work that you do. Right. And Isabel Briggs Myers thought that it was an incredibly effective tool for launching what she called a double-barreled attack on job turnover. So on the one hand, the employer could figure out who was the best type for whatever job they were hiring for or promoting somebody to. On the other hand, the employer could be made to feel that they were doing exactly what it was they were supposed to be doing because they were simply made to do that particular thing. It was a type-suitable job. It was making the workers' psyche available to work in both of those directions. This presumes a situation or a sort of a value, a set of values that are about the individual being useful to first the company and then more broadly to society, that in a sense, finding yourself, figuring out who you are is also about figuring out where you fit in and what your utilitarian role is. I think that's absolutely right. So it's impossible to understand the work that the type indicator does outside of the work it's doing within very particular social hierarchies and bureaucracies. I mean, I remember reading like years ago, maybe as an impressionable 20 25-year-old myself. Were you still impressionable at 25? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm, still, I'm still surprisingly impressionable at 46. Um, <laughs> but, you know, reading Plato's Republic without the benefit of a class and not really seeing the kind of the sinister implications of the society that, that Socrates was outlining and actually thinking it sounded really nice, this idea of identifying at an early age what a person's skills were, what their talents were, and then sort of slotting them into a life path that was perfect for them. That sounded really good. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two, to borrow your word, more sinister uh, implications of that. Um, I mean, the first is the way in which instruments like the type indicator flatten the individual um, and make the individual into just a kind of constellation of traits that make them available to being moved around uh, or discarded by these large institutions as they see fit. Um, The second thing that I think is sinister and, and even more sinister are the kinds of people who are not allowed to have personalities under the language of type. So I mean this both historically and and in a contemporary way. So historically, Isabel Briggs Myers believed that the type indicator shouldn't be given to anybody who had an IQ below 100 uh, because she believed that type preferences could only appear among the more intelligent portions of the population. Let's take a step back. I mean, Catherine is the mother. Isabel is the daughter. And the early ideas that later coalesce into the Myers-Briggs type indicator are being formed at a time when uh, ideas about sort of social Darwinism and, and eugenics are also current in America. So there is this idea of a kind of natural hierarchy of humans. Yes, that's absolutely right. So Catherine Cook Briggs is the mother. Isabel Briggs Myers is the daughter. Right. And when Catherine first encountered Jung's ideas and even Carl Jung's ideas, which is what the indicator is based on, right. and even before really she encountered them, she had a very strong sense that in order to be a person who should live in the world, you had to be a specialized person. Mm-hmm. You had to find the one thing that was right for you and you had to excel in it. 
Um, and only by excelling in that one thing could you make both a positive social contribution, but also could you ensure your own personal salvation. So her understanding of, of specialization had a sort of strongly spiritual component to it, that this was the way you were going to ensure a good life for yourself in the present, but also the way you were going to ensure that you would save your soul once you died. And then Isabel Briggs Myers is obviously deeply influenced by her mother's ideas about specialization. Uh, right. But she comes to them a little bit later on, sort of immediately after World War II when there's this boom in the labor force. And people are increasingly on the lookout for ways of quickly assessing whether or not a person is right for a particular job. So she inherits her mother's ideas and then figures out a way to create this, this mass form of personality testing that will allow her to implement those ideas on, on the largest scale possible. So early on, Catherine, she has a kind of baby laboratory in her house where she's trying to train her daughter, Isabel. Catherine calls herself a curiosity, uh, obedience, obedience mother. mother, right? Yeah. yeah. And so she's sort of, she's an early, in a sense, mommy blogger and also, but also very much partaking in the kind of psychological experimentation of the time, the idea of making a better human. And I think that obedience, curiosity dichotomy, which you point out is a, is a paradox, really gets at the heart of something that's very strange about the Myers-Briggs test, which is that obedience is obviously about remaining in line, adhering to a set of rules, a, a kind of flattening. And curiosity is about the opposite. It's about a sort of open-ended, divergent thinking. The Myers-Briggs test is, you know, a flattening in a sense because it gives you a simple four-letter code, you know, for who you are and, and allows companies to use that. And at the same time, it partakes at least of the language and the ideas of Jung's idea of personalities, which are, which are very deep and murky and individualized. Yeah, I love the way you frame that, actually. And I love the way that you've sort of threaded the idea of the obedience, curiosity mother through the indicator, because I think that's exactly right. That on the one hand, there is this curiosity about the self that is signaled when people when people take the indicator. Um, even if you're taking it because somebody has asked you to take it for work, I think it's still difficult not to be sucked in by the promise that something is going to be revealed to you about the true you, something that right. is essential and immutable. And on the other hand, you are taking it for work uh, and your personality is being fixed by a set of terms that are by no means naturally occurring or pure, <laughs> but are part of a deeply idiosyncratic and ideological inflected system of understanding what personhood is and what kind of people get to have personhood and what kind of people get to be individuals. So one of the things the book is interested in is always trying to keep the individual experience of taking the indicator and, and more broadly, the individual experience of questing for the self, always trying to keep that intention with the social constraints that right. govern how it is that we look for the self and who gets to have a self. And once those selves are discovered, how they are put to work in, in uh, under industrial modernity. And those tensions sort of play out in the history of that's described in the book as well. Who is the psychologist at Harvard who... Henry Murray. In the context of World War II, Henry Murray starts to move away from the, the kind of William James and I would say also Jungian, in a sense, idea of the individual, the kind of romantic, I keep using the word murky, 
idea of the individual as this, you know, somewhat mystical thing that you can peer into, but it's mercurial and it resists your grasp. And toward the idea of he sees that as somehow decadent in the context of a world where people should be more active and take more of an active role in society. Right. I mean, when he's at the Harvard Psychological Clinic, Murray is really interested in figuring out how psychology can be put towards defeating fascism. And, you know, one of the things that Murray does, uh, one of the things that he takes a leave from the clinic to do is to create a personality profile of Adolf Hitler for the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. And then he goes on to head uh, an OSS station called Station S, which is responsible for matching covert operatives to the World War II undercover missions that are best suited to their personalities. Um, So he's very interested in making people's personalities work for the state. And he does not believe uh, at that point in time that the activity of finding oneself ought to be an end in and of itself. Now, later on in the history of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, Murray ends up championing it or being involved in bringing it to prominence? Murray's protege, a guy named Donald McKinnon, is probably the person most responsible for bringing it to prominence. He's the one who actually purchases it for use at OSS Station S. And then he takes it with him to California, where he becomes the director of this institute called the Institute uh, for Personality Assessment and Research, or IPAR. I mean, I think he's the first psychologist, the first academic psychologist to really take it seriously. And it's because of it's because of him that it sort of gains this foothold in California and in academic psychology circles there. But McKinnon is working with Murray at right. Station S in the in the mid 40s. And let's talk a little bit about I mean Station S is fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about IPAR if we could. So IPAR yeah. is a a kind of a reality TV show, in a sense. I mean, it's a, a house that, and and the and mostly they're studying creativity. Is that right? Well, it's a little bit different at different moments in time. So okay. IPAR is located at a fraternity house, okay. uh, which was purchased by McKinnon with the help of these massive grants at the time from the Rockefeller uh, Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation. And initially, they were interested in figuring out what made people good applicants to college. Uh, Was there any way that you could predict how somebody would succeed in college or in medical school or law school by giving them personality assessments as part of the admissions process? And this was because too many people were applying to medical school, like on the GI Bill after World War II? Right. Too many people were applying to college. Too many people were applying to medical school. It was no longer possible to use something like test scores, they thought, to predict how well somebody would actually perform as a doctor or as a college student or a businessman or whatever. And so they were interested in figuring out if they could sort of supplement aptitude tests with any kind of personality test. So the way that IPAR started out was that McKinnon would have 25 to 30 college students or medical students or whoever living in this fraternity house for a long weekend. Right. And they would all be subject to just days of testing and role-playing um, and interviews and, and dinners where they would be observed and their answers would be recorded. And the whole point was to try to figure out whether or not, based on your observations of these students, you could actually find out what traits the high achievers shared in common, the high achieving students, and then you could kind of design a test that would measure 
for those traits. Right. So it started out as being a way of measuring success more conventionally understood. But then in the late 50s and the early 60s, the interest really shifted to creativity. And this is sort of at the height of the Cold War space race. Um, and there was a strong sort of belief that creativity was what would help us win the Cold War and, and win the space race. And so McKinnon and his team become interested in figuring out what makes somebody creative. And to answer that question, they start bringing creative writers and architects and painters to live in the house for these weekends, and they start assessing them. Right. And so, uh, you know, this is one of my favorite parts in the book because I'm a I'm a literature scholar, and so this speaks right to my interests. But there's this one uh, heady weekend uh, there where Truman Capote and Kenneth Burke and Howard Baker and McKinley Cantor are all in this house together, and you know. Nobody knows about this. I mean, nobody has really written about IPAR and certainly not about the very few people have written about IPAR and and nobody in any detail about the creative writers thing. And I actually, you know, when I was writing this book, called them and they're kind of a one person operation now. It's this lovely woman named Elizabeth Peel who does a lot of the administrative work there. And she said, you know, I'm in the building and there are these file cabinets in the basement, which I'm about to throw away, but hmm. there are some old papers in there if you want to look through them. Wow. And I was on FaceTime with her because I wasn't going to go out there if I didn't know that there was anything out there. So she puts me on FaceTime and we kind of descend into the basement and then into these file cabinets. And the first folder that we see when we open the cabinet cabinet says writer's study on it. And I say, okay, well, that looks interesting. So we open it up and the first page on it is Truman Capote's Rorschach blot test. <laughs> and then the second page after that is this sort of 20 page type document of Truman Capote's interviews with a staff psychologist that was tasked with interviewing him. And oh then after God. that are these pictures of these mosaics that he and the other writers were asked to construct because they believe that something about the way you arrange the tiles and the patterns and colors that you chose um, would reveal something about your personality. So it was just this extraordinary archive. And as we started digging through it, we found papers from William Carlos Williams, from Catherine Ann Porter, Marianne wow. Moore, Norman Mailer, and nobody knew it was there. And it was about That's to be incredible. thrown out. Oh, my God. It was about to be thrown out. I just tell that story because all of the history that I'm narrating or filling in comes from doing this kind of archival research or even stumbling onto documents that I didn't know existed when I started looking for them. Well, yeah. And like the fact that the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which seems when most people encounter it to be this monolithic entity that has existed for all time, was in fact this idiosyncratically developed cottage industry between a mother and daughter. That is not something that pretty much anyone talks about. I did a master's in developmental psychology at Teachers College Columbia, and the Myers-Briggs type, type indicator was certainly talked about in there, and you know this was never mentioned. So, can I, can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to flip the script for a second? Please. How did they talk about it? I mean, did they just present it as like, here's an instrument, here's yeah, some statistics uh -huh, about uh -huh, its validity yeah, and reliability? Yes, and I recall at the time talking about, you know, I had taken it and I was bothered by the introvert-extrovert spectrum because I was like, well, right. I felt like I was somewhere in the middle, but like the nature of the test wasn't really to talk about those 
a spectrum so much as it was to nail down your type in a sense. And the answers that I got were pretty evasive. I mean, they were just like, well, it's a psychological instrument and it's been designed in such a way that, you know, I, I also had questions about, am I not just answering, likely answering things in a way that reflects the kind of person I'd like to think of myself as. And, you know, they say, well, no, it's been carefully psychologically designed and scientifically designed to baffle those attempts. Something that you said that has always been really interesting to me about it is the way that the definitions of the categories have really drifted over time. So now we tend to think of extrovert or introvert or the way that the MBTI website and anybody who administers it tells you to think of being an extrovert or an introvert is where you get your energy from. Right. Right. I mean, I'm sure that's how you encountered it, right? That's you, right. That's right. You that's feel right. You get you recharge being, internally or recharge from communication with others. Right. Exactly. And then it's measured by questions that are asking you all sorts of things about your sociability, your talkativeness, um, things like that. But, you know, I'm actually really compelled by Jung's original understanding of extrovert and introvert, which is that an extrovert is somebody who is a kind of social chameleon. They're a person who is very adept at changing their self-presentation as they move from one social context to another. And the way to think of an extrovert is kind of like a a seasoned character actor. Mm. Whereas the introvert is somebody who has such a strong sense of their own subjectivity that they refuse to change according to external circumstances. And so the kind of glib, but I think instructive example Jung gives in psychological types is that on a blustery day, the extrovert is the person who will immediately put his hat and coat on when going outside. And the introvert is the person who will say, no, I want to be hardened by the weather. I'm going out without (laughs) anything on. So it is interesting to me how some of these terms seem to have more purchase or just seem to yield more fruitful kinds of discussions in their original forms rather than the than their current forms which have been you know distilled often for like particularly corporate purposes which book is is it of jung's that in which he talks about the types is it personality it's, it's types? his 1923 book psychological types psychological types i haven't read yeah. that one but i've read other things by jung and i would assume that he is not rigid and dogmatic in the way that he talks about the types, that he would admit of some fluidity there, that these are sort of archetypes, as it were. Yeah, and and I think in the earliest versions of the indicator, particularly in the ways that Catherine, Isabel's mother, would talk about type, uh, there was much more discussion of how everybody has the capacity to show a preference for extroversion or introversion because extroversion for Jung and for Catherine is so much about the different personae that you can play. Catherine was very attentive to the fact that everybody has different personae that they play. And and she even made this wonderful sort of list of her own personae that included, you know, mother, daughter, grandmother, wife, housekeeper, writer, amateur psychologist, aspiring psychoanalyst. And so I think some of that rigidity or the idea that one is a type. Right. uh, So you'll often hear people say things like, I am an ENTJ or I am an ISFP. That language of certainty seems to me to be a pretty modern byproduct of the way that type has been used to sort people. I think the rigidity of statements like I am this or I am that comes from precisely the way that type has been used. The thing that strikes me the most, I mean, this sticks just blows my mind the most about this is the fact that Jung, that it's Jung 
that has undergone this kind of transformation, that it's Jung's ideas that are being used here. To me, it's, I mean, it might as well be Rilke or William Blake or something like Jung. It's not that, right. it's not that Jung was a pure romantic. I mean, sure, he was a scientist, but the way in which he engaged in the world is so very different from this, from this instrumental approach. Yeah, and if you read psychological types, I mean, I actually think it's thrilling reading uh, because most of the time it it reads a little bit like like a novel to me. Mm. And you know, this was John Watson's criticism of the book when it came out, which was that instead of pursuing a kind of empiricist or behaviorist model right. of psychology, this restores to psychology a kind of mysticism. And that mysticism is not based on anything other than Jung's readings of really all of the classics of Western and Eastern philosophy and and, and literature. And yeah. so it is extraordinary to me, too, that it's become young in the way that Young's uh, name and, and sort of posthumous reputation among, I think, business people and sort of lay or amateur psychologists um, or pop people who people who uh, read pop psychology, the way that Jung's posthumous reputation has been sort of filtered through the type indicator. But if you actually read psychological types, it's really astonishing for its breadth and its the depth that it goes to to try to read individual novels and stories and even characters of philosophers right. to try to create these life narratives for them where words like introvert and extrovert are kind of like useful descriptors, but ultimately end up being so much more capacious than what they are within the typological system that Jung's name has become attached to. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go back and read that book of Jung. It's really long. <laughs> it's like 600 pages. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's a summer reading project. I'll, I'll put it on the beach, beach reading list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, and so that brings us to the second part of the show where we're going to discuss a surprise clip from Big Things Interview Archives. This is Benjamin Hardy, who is apparently the most read person on Medium, and the video is called Want More Happiness, Change How You Relate to Negativity. So basically, for most of psychology's history, the focus has been on, on what's negative about people on diagnosing illnesses, on depression, on problems. And in the last, since like the late 90s, there's been a huge emphasis on positive psychology, on studying what's right about people, on studying human flourishing. So basically a Harvard researcher, and I forget his name off the top of my head, but he says that it's a lot easier to act your way into feeling than to feel your way into acting. And so if you spend a lot of time anticipating an event, it's gonna hold you from doing it. But if you just actually start doing it, motivation will kick in, you'll start to actually get accustomed to it, you'll start to develop capacity, you'll adapt to it. So I think it can hold people back, but obviously a positive anticipation can be a great thing. So like there's this idea that, you know, you're always changing, but that doesn't mean you're always growing. So if you want to grow, you must change. But just because you changed doesn't mean you grew or you became better. So you could, you could obviously change your habits, and I think that as human beings we're always adapting and changing based on what's around us. So we're always replacing old habits with new ones, but that doesn't mean that you're creating positive habits. If you want to create positive habits, uh, I don't. I mean, it doesn't always have to be hard, but I think generally it's going to be somewhat difficult. It's going to take take growing out of that. So yeah, I would say yeah, you can change habits through a hedonistic perspective. Doesn't mean that you might be developing the ones you want. 
What is this self-help nonsense you made me watch? I, I did not make you watch it. My video team made you watch it and made me watch it too. <laughs> so I, I bear no responsibility. I have no, I, I completely hands off, which gives me plausible deniability. Okay. So then the question is, I mean, this question of, I don't know, how people change, whether people change. I mean, I, I it certainly relates to the Myers-Briggs thing, the, the, the Myers-Briggs right. test and the idea of the fixed personality versus the mutable personality. But I think it might be more interesting to ask you, Merve, yeah. you know, you talked about who you were early on in your career when you took the Myers-Briggs test and the kinds of aspirations you had and how that's no longer the way that you see and engage with the world. You're not trying to be, I don't know, the head of Oxford or whatever it might be. I guess the question is, how did those changes happen? And I'm, I'm curious of your own insights, anecdotal evidence as to how change happens, you know, in, in a personality. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have a slightly different take on this, which is that, um, you know, when we were watching this, I was I was kind of rolling my eyes and making rude hand gestures over here, um, and it wasn't. And it wasn't because of. It wasn't because. I mean, of course, everything he says is totally vague and and silly. Right. Um, but it's more that I've come to in writing this book and in spending so much time thinking about the self and its different dimensions and the self in different contexts. I've actually become incredibly tired of thinking and talking about the self um, <laughs> and. And I found that, well, I've just found that the question of how a single person in the world grows or becomes the best version of who they can be, like to me, that just isn't an interesting or an urgent question anymore. And the kinds of questions that are more important to me now is like, what can we do to create a world and and a series of social structures where everybody can flourish no matter who they are individually? Right. Um, and, I, and I guess what I would say is that, you know, that those are those are more like political and social questions for me, and those are the kinds of questions that seem more important to answer now. So let me ask you this, though. I mean, doesn't answering that bigger question of sort of what kind of structures will allow individual, you know, every person to flourish and be their utmost self in the world, whatever that might be, doesn't there have to be some sort of agreement, some shared values about what it means to be a flourishing self? what we're looking for in terms of human development to say, like, how do we build a world that enables each person to flourish? I mean, that, that presumes already that there is an idea of indiv individual flourishing. Right. No, absolutely. And, and I think for me, it's not how different people can individually flourish. I mean, it's not a question about individual development per se. It's like, what kinds of social structures do we need for people to flourish? So like, it seems to me a huge problem that this entire discussion we're having and all of these discussions about personality mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really only apply to, you know, like people can only take this test, right? If they are literate. Um, right. People only have access to this test if they exist in a kind of middle or upper middle class bourgeois world. Right. Why is it that our discussions about personality and personhood are limited to those categories, to those classes of people? And gotcha. once we start looking beyond that, you know, the questions of what people need to flourish become, I think, really more basic, right? They need basic income. They need access to functioning infrastructure and healthcare and things like that. So, right. I mean, I think I think for me, those kinds of social questions about 
individual flourishing or about people flourishing yeah. have nothing to do with like how individual people develop and everything to do with these kind of larger questions about structure. If you were able to create social and economic, you know, political and economic structures that made it possible for every individual or everyone, all of us to flourish, it would look very different in different places, in different cultures, in different societies, I, I guess. I mean, you know, I, you know, I also come back to the sort of very broad and very blunt East-West divide in the kind of focus on the individual versus the focus on the the family, the community. Right, of course. And and there are certain places, you know, and you learn this when you try to sell the foreign rights to a book, right? <laughs> there are certain places where the idea of these sort of individual tests, these tests that are designed to assess and give you a language in which to speak about individuality, simply are not appealing and are not legible within the kind of cultural and material contexts of those countries. Right. Um, so I do think that, I do think that many people, when they talk about type, when they talk about personality, they're always already presuming a very particular model of the person that they are talking about. And that person is generally white and Western and upper middle class. And I think in order to get at what I think are some more inclusive and, and important questions, we might want to abandon these conversations about the self and the individual altogether. I will say, though, that, you know... And but you should still buy my book. <laughs> um, it, it will help you figure... It will help you identify exactly who you are. But uh, I, I guess we have to wrap up there because I know you have another conversation coming up. But Merve Emre, I I'm so, so much enjoyed talking to you. I'm so sorry we had to cut this short. This no, was lovely. No, no, this was lovely and I very much enjoyed it. And uh, I very much enjoyed your book and unreservedly recommend it to our listeners. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. We've talked on this show before about the idea of l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase where when you're walking out the door, you remember something that you really wish you had said. Something I really wish I had talked about with Merve is once we solve, if we solve, the basic problem of creating a world in which people have enough food to eat and enough security to flourish, don't we then arrive at the same set of questions about the individual in the world? Isn't that why the self-help industry and the obsession with the development of the self exist in America? And if that's not what we should aspire to once basic needs are met, what should we be aspiring to? Interesting questions. We'll be back next week with something very different. The fall semester of Think Again proceeds apace. And if you like what you're hearing, please rate or review us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you listen. And uh, hope you can join us for next week's episode.